Well, good morning. Uh, we are in the book of Ephesians, so if you have a Bible, you can open up to the first chapter. We're going to be in it today and for the next several months, so get comfortable. I'm hoping that if you, or you travel along with us, that you are reading scriptures through the week out of Ephesians, really thinking about some of the topics and issues we're talking about. The book of Ephesians is one of the richest books in all of scripture, just six chapters, but it is called the, the, the most majestic presentation of the gospel in all of scripture. Romans goes in a lot deeper, but, but uh, Ephesians raises it up to this level that, that holds the gospel up as the source of such power and blessing and favor in our lives. And the more we understand what God has done for us, the more we can walk in uh, that confidence and identity in our own lives and have victory. So if you don't have a Bible, you can always stop by the little cabinet and back and grab one, or better yet, you can download an app on your phone and follow along with us there. Uh, last week, we started off in the first chapter, and I shared how Paul wrote Ephesians. Paul grew up in a in a religious home, very steeped in the Jewish tradition. He wanted to be a Pharisee, which meant he was very knowledgeable in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, very zealous for maintaining the historic faith that had been passed down from generation to generation. So when this new movement rose up called Christianity, or wasn't called that at the time, it was called the Way, or the nickname the Way, he fought against it. Yet he had something very much in common with the, with the Ephesians, though it doesn't look like that on the surface, because the Ephesians did not grow up with the view of a one god. They had many gods. In fact, they worshipped the goddess Diana or Artemis. There was about 20 different gods and goddesses in that culture at that time, but that was the most prominent one. Along with the worship of Artemis was sorcery and witchcraft and, and uh, connection to the spirit world. And so these people were very steeped in a cultic lifestyle, promiscuous lifestyle, and very, very different from what Paul grew up. And yet both of them had a need for grace. And we learned last week that grace is, is even better than mercy. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. Grace means you get what you don't deserve. So example is if, if, if you've sinned, you deserve punishment for your sins. Mercy says, I'm not going to punish you for your sins. Grace says, not only am I not going to punish you for your sins, I'm going to give you the gift of eternal life. And so God does that. He gives us grace. And we're going to hit that word grace again and again, even today, in the message. And grace comes to us, fills our hearts, and gives us peace, which is really what we desire in our lives, to be able to go through life feeling peace. If you have peace, you can deal with about anything in your life. And peace is only found in one place, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. So we're going to read just a few more verses today in the first chapter. And like last week, I want to encourage you, this is not some old dusty book. This is the living word of God that speaks into issues that are timeless. And, and it'll speak to us if we open our hearts. If we don't, then this is going to be something that sort of sails over our heads. Some of what we'll talk about today is pretty deep. But if you seek God and ask him to speak to you, you will hear a voice prompting you to trust him in a certain way, surrender in a certain way, change a way of thinking, you'll hear him speak. It won't be an audible voice. It'll be that subtle confirmation, whispering of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so I want to ask you to join me in praying that today. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've done for us. And thank you that you have given us this book called The Living Word of God. And we ask that you'd speak through it to our hearts today. Whatever background we've come from, from the student up to the retiree. Father, I pray that you speak to each one of us in our unique setting of how we need to be trusting you in a greater way in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure 
his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, there are, there are three sentences I just read, but in the Greek, there actually is one sentence. In fact, that one sentence goes beyond this. It goes from verse 3 to verse 14. It is one long sentence in the Greek. It's as if Paul got started in praising God and he couldn't stop. It's like, don't get me started. If I start talking about God, I'm not going to be able to shut up. So he just starts like throwing these wave after wave of, of these major reasons why we need to be praising God. And we're, we're focusing here in this first section just on God the Father. Next week, he goes into what we, what we need to praise Jesus for. And then the week after that, how we need to praise the Holy Spirit. And we are Trinitarian as believers, meaning we believe that God uh, reveals himself in the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And salvation is the work of all three of them in our lives. It's not just Jesus, though Jesus is the central figure and the one we worship the most. God the Father is involved in it, and so is the Holy Spirit, very much involved in it. And that's why when someone's baptized, they're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because they're all involved. It's like they, they, they gang-tackled this project of redemption and did it in a marvelous way. Now, what I notice about Paul in this letter is how praise just flows so freely from his lips. Paul, Paul's in prison. Paul had a lot of things he could complain about. Paul had a lot of difficulties in his life. I mean, he was persecuted, he was hated, he was betrayed. I mean, a lot of things going against Paul, but the first words out of his mouth are praise. And here's what I find in my life, and I find true of believers. The more we grow in our faith, the more we've shifted our focus from what's around us to what's above us. It's shifting the focus from the circumstances to the Savior. And here's, here's what happens. So many of us get caught in this whirlwind of lifestyle, and we're seeing it going on a lot this year, Political issues, cultural issues, um, environmental weather issues, health issues, and we look all around us and the first words out of our mouth are things like this, oh, I'm concerned that, I'm worried that, I'm afraid of, rather than looking up and say, God, you are unchanging, you are faithful, you are good, you are righteous, you are gracious, and the words that should be coming out of our mouth are praises. And, and yet when we get stuck in this mire of stuff around us, you know what? It doesn't make a bit of difference in those circumstances. I can talk all day long about the hurricanes and it will not make any difference at all. But if I start talking about the Lord, peace, joy, compassion, assurance start flooding into my life. And so what I want to ask you to do is lift your focus from your circumstances, whatever they are, and and I'm not saying ignore them, or I'm not saying they don't matter. What I'm saying is there's someone greater than your circumstances. And you'll get stuck down here in fear and anxiety and depression if you stay in the midst of your circumstances. Lift your eyes to the Lord, because you and I have been really blessed. We'll look at that today. So here's what I find in Paul's life, and I find true of all mature believers. A focus on the Father prompts unrestrained praise. It's like Paul. Paul can't stop praising God once he got started. And I find that true. The more you recognize what God has done, it's like, man, I've shaken the bottle. I've uncorked the top, and it just keeps coming out. These praise, praise, praise. I'll get to the request later, but right now I'm just emptying myself of all the things I need to praise God for. Some of you might remember earlier this year I encouraged us to have 30 days of praise and to post things we're grateful for. And there's a lady in our church that actually, she's on day like 205 of praise. I love that, because praise is endless. So why should we praise God? Well, first of all, because he has blessed us in Christ. 
blessed us in Christ. A friend of mine from um, Bible college days reconnected with me, and this week he, he made a statement that I took at first as a compliment or affirmation. He says, you live a blessed life. And I said, you know, I, I really have. I, I, I can't complain. I'm like Dave Ramsey. I've been blessed far more than I deserve. Got a wonderful wife, great kids, super grandkids, live in a nice house, have a great job, wonderful church and staff, Colorado, who, can't ask for, who can ask for better than that? I mean, uh, decent health. Nothing, things aren't perfect in my life, but I am blessed. I have so many reasons to give God thanks. But there was something that concerned me about his statement. It's almost as if he underlined the you. You live a blessed life. And so I replied and says, don't we all? I mean, don't we all as believers live the blessed life? And he said, no, some of us live cursed lives. We live with the demons of our past and we walk in darkness and fight depression every single day. I thought, I think you're missing something. I think you're missing something. I think your focus is on the wrong thing. Because every blessing I have is blessings you have. I'm not, God doesn't treat me any different than he treats you. But he did say this at the very end of his little note. He said, the secret to joy is living with Christ's view of the world and trusting God will make all things right if I surrender to his will. I said, amen. Surrendering to his will, that's the key. Seeing things from his perspective, surrendering to his will, that is the secret to joy. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. A right perspective and a surrender to God's will leads to this life of gratitude for the blessings. He says, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Blessed us. He's writing to the Ephesians. He says he's blessed us. He didn't exclude anybody in the church from that when he said it. And that letter went out to other churches to be read as well. And I'm sure when they read it, they said, I'll bet that blessing includes us too. Absolutely. And when you read it, it includes you. Us is Every single believer, he has blessed us. But you may say, Pastor, I just don't feel blessed. Well, that may be true. I didn't say you will feel blessed. I just said you are blessed because there's a difference between the two. You may be incredibly blessed and not feel it. Years ago, our kids received a Christmas gift from their grandparents. And it was something like um, $500 college tuition. It was, a, it was a, like a check for, that they could cash in in the future for college tuition. And all the grandkids at Christmas got that. And, and you should have seen the, the stares of those kids, like, $500, $500. I think I should be excited, but I'm not. <laughs> you can't play with this. You can't eat it. You can't, it's a piece of paper. And I'm not even thinking of college. My kids got, got Furbies and Tickle Me Elmos and race cars and, and robots, and I got... credit for college. Woo! You know? But we would say, man, that's incredible. You are really blessed. I don't feel blessed, but you are. Because your grandparents are looking ahead to what your great need is. College education is incredible. And God looks ahead and says, I know you don't feel blessed because you're thinking right now, I need this and I want that, and if I could only have this, then I would be blessed. And God says, "You you need to be rescued from death for one. I'm working on that. You, you, you need to have, you've got issues down the road that I'm addressing in your life that you don't even know right now, but you are blessed. Know that I am the father of blessing. He says that these are blessings in the heavenly realms. A, a term that Paul uses a lot in Ephesians, it's this sphere called the heavenly realms. It's not heaven. 
Because we know in the sixth chapter, he says, we do battle with spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. So it's not heaven. It's speaking of another dimension that's around us called the heavenly realms in which there are other beings that exist. And so he says, your spiritual blessings are in that realm, not this one. A little bit of contrast with the Old Testament. The blessings of the Old Covenant were largely physical, tangible, promised land, uh, Plentiful livestock, produce, blessed family, large families, all those things. Wealth was a sign of God's blessing. Not so much in the New Testament. The blessings are spiritual because every single physical blessing that you receive, guess what? Will one day spoil, rot, decay, be stolen, wear out, be given to somebody else. God gives us things that are eternal, that last forever. And they're accessible in the spiritual realm. Why? Because we are, we are living in two different worlds. When you become a Christian, you start to become aware, oh my goodness, there's another world around me. It's an invisible world. It's a real spiritual world, but it's there. And I'm walking with one foot in this physical world and one foot in this spiritual world, and they, the, both of them intersect with my life. And so I can't just take care of my physical body and, and shelter and clothe and just concern myself with that. I've got to deal with these other spiritual issues. In fact, these are the greater issues that live beyond the physical issues. So he says the things are spiritual, meaning, this is another translation of the word spiritual, of the spirit, meaning these are blessings that come to us through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts, gifts that allow us, allow us to serve as a part of God's kingdom work. And so those are gifts that God gives us, and, they're, and they're, they apply to our lives. God gives us the, the fruit of the spirit. Things like love and joy, peace, patience. And it goes beyond there to things like hope and compassion. God pours those into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Yes, your body may be growing old and and weary and tired, but over here your spirit is growing in hope and strength and faith because these things are lasting. They are spiritual blessings. When when Peter wrote, he echoed the same thing. Uh, Peter wrote to the believers in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and says, His divine power has given us everything everything we need for a godly life. Everything, not that we want, everything we need to live a godly life. Not everything we need even to be happy, though happiness follows later. Everything we need to live a life that reflects God is present in our lives. He says, everything you need to do that, I've given you. It's accessible to you. Every single believer has it. It's there, and it's kept in the spiritual realm, and you access it through surrender and prayer and things like that. God gives it to us. Now, when you understand those blessings, then the praises start to bubble up in our lives, and you can't stop thanking God for all the things he does. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices were animals that were slaughtered, were crops that were presented to the Lord as gifts, money given to the temple. Those were sacrifices people gave. But the biggest sacrifice we make is, is in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, it says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of what? Praise, the fruit of lips that openly confess his name. He says, continually, not just Sunday mornings, not just once a week, continually through the day, every day, offer to God a sacrifice of praise because he is worthy. He is a father who's blessed us. He also has chosen us in Christ 
For he chose us before the foundation or the creation of the world. This is the doctrine of election. Kind of a complex theological issue, but election simply means choosing. When election comes in November every year, you vote, which is you choose. You choose who you want to be, your officers or leaders. That is an election. So God has elected or chosen um, people, nations. So we have the nation of Israel, which was God's chosen people. Out of that nation of Israel came a chosen one, the elect one, named Jesus Christ. So when Jesus began his ministry, this verse was quoted, Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. Jesus is the elect one, and all who trust in him become part of God's elect family. God has chosen us, it says, in him, in Christ, to have faith in him. Now, how does it feel when someone chooses you? It feels pretty good, doesn't it? When, when I was little, I played baseball um, from the time I was about five years of age. Back in the old days, they used to have a, a baseball league called Pee Wee League. Any of you remember that? Pee Wee League. That was for the kids like five, six, and seven. And then we graduated to Midget League. And then when we got to be older, like fifth and sixth grade, we got to be in Little League. Well, back in Pee Wee League, we actually had kids pitching Six-year-olds pitching to five-year-olds and six-year-olds and seven-year-olds. And you can just imagine how torturous those games were because every batter either walked or struck out. I mean, if they never swang, they're going to get walked because none of these kids can throw a strike uh, consistently. And so these games would drag on for hours, and, and uh, every once in a while, some kid would hit the ball accidentally. And chaos would erupt. I mean, the, the parents would get up in the stands and go, run, run! And the kids would, you know, they didn't know which way to run. And they, they're kind of going this way, run to first. Well, where's first? And it's over that way. So they're running. And the kids in the field, they don't know what to do with the ball. So they're passing it and they're throwing it. And everyone's screaming, run, run. And if, what it reminds me of is a Benny Hill movie. You know, if you remember Benny Hill, listen to this. Just picture these kids running all over. That's what, that's what peewee ball is like. It's just these kids running all over the place. And uh, I was a five-year-old, not very good in baseball. I got better. I eventually became an all-star when I got older. But first time the ball was hit to me, I, the, the coach yelled, catch it. And I said, no way. <laughs> no, I'm not catching that ball. See, there's, there's no surprise that when we had pickup games in our neighborhood, They'd have two of the star players would be the, the coaches, and they would draft their players. They'd throw a baseball bat in the air and grab it by the neck, and the next player would go this and this and this, and the one who got the hand where, where it hit the knob on the top, they got to pick first. I was never picked first, just want you to know that. <laughs> or second. Or third. I was usually, at the very end, with somebody's sister. <laughs> somebody's little sister, who they had to bring along to the game, waiting to get picked, for the game. I mean, that was bad. And you know what? It, when you're the last one picked or the one that nobody wants to pick, it kind of hurts. And as you get older, those things can be traumatic. Getting cut from the ball team, not making the band or the cheerleading squad, uh, not getting accepted into a college, getting rejected for the job you applied for. Or maybe one of the hardest ones is when someone you really love says, you're not the one for me. And the feeling of rejection is, is so hurtful, so powerful, so devastating that 
for, for God to come along and say, you know what? Before you ever chose me, I chose you. Before you ever even had a thought of me, I chose you. Before you were born, I chose you. Before the mountains and this earth was formed, I chose you. Well, why would God do that? Why would God choose anyone? What is it about us that would cause God to choose us? I want to tell you, there's nothing about you that would cause God to choose you. He chooses you because of him. Listen to this. God, God says this of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, his chosen people, the chosen nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter seven. Here's what God says to the people. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. It had nothing to do with you. He says, it's all about me. I chose you because of who I am. Because I'm a loving God and I'm a faithful God and I chose you. Are you chosen? This is kind of a mystery that, that church leaders debate at times. Because some believe that God has chosen some people and those people will come to faith and go to heaven to be with him. And there are some that God says, I didn't choose you. You can never come to me. And you have a place in eternity separated from me. And I struggle with that. I really do. Because it, to me, it doesn't mesh with the, the, the way that God is presented in Scripture. And I believe there's a story that, to me, explains this very clearly. Jesus said in Matthew 22, there was a king who offered a banquet for his son who was getting married. And he invited all these certain people to come to the banquet. But when he sent his servants out to tell them it's time to come, they said, we're not coming. We're not coming. So the king said, then go out on the streets and invite anybody you can. And so they began to go out and just indiscriminately invite people. Come to this banquet. Come to this banquet. It says good people, bad people. They're all invited to come. And the banquet hall was filled. And then, and then Jesus says this. This is in Matthew 22, verse 14. He says, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Now let me ask you this. When the word then was sent out to the streets, how many were invited? Pretty much everyone, right? Everyone was invited. But who were the chosen ones? The ones who accepted. See, God sends this broad invitation, and the chosen ones are the ones who respond to the invitation. Now, now be clear about this. This is something I think every, every Christian should be able to agree on. Nobody comes to the Lord without him initiating the relationship. Nobody comes to the Lord because they thought it was a good idea. The only reason you come to the Lord is because he initiated it in you. He, he stirred something in you. He invited you. His Holy Spirit began to stir within you. You, could not, you would not desire to even come to the Lord if it wasn't for him moving first. So let's make, be very clear. God initiates the relationship. Nobody comes, Jesus says, to the Father unless the Son enable him. But the second part, I think, is, is equally true. That everyone who responds to the invitation becomes a chosen one. Because if, if, if we are to sit back and say, well, God's chosen some but not others, how am I going to know who they are? How do I know who God has chosen? Would anybody, as a parent, ever sit down with their kids or grandkids and say, do you know what? God's chosen some of you, but some of you, he didn't. <laughs> and the way you're acting is, I don't think he chose you, Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know anybody who believes that doctrine even talks that way to their kids. They all want to believe, all my kids are one of the chosen ones. All my grandkids are chosen ones. 
Well, the truth of the matter is maybe everyone can be a chosen one. Because listen, when the angels came on the day of Christ's birth, they said, we bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Listen to Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to how many people? All people. All people. But here's the problem. Invitation's gone out, and the issue isn't God's failing to act. God's being very patient. He's waiting for us to respond. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. God's will is that nobody perishes, but that all come to repentance. He's waiting for you to come to your senses, turn around, and come to him. Some of you are in that place. You have been invited. See, I'm not here to be part of the judgment team. I'm here to be on the invitation committee to let you know you are invited. And every Sunday, we invite you to accept the invitation to be part of the wedding banquet. And, and you don't have to say, I don't think I'm worthy. That's okay. He didn't pick you because you're worthy. He didn't choose you because you were. He chose you because he loves you. So, chose us to be holy and blameless. And just what that makes me think of is this picture of the bride in the New Testament, how she prepares herself for her bridegroom. Every bride I know at, at the wedding has prepared herself physically, but also emotionally. She has set her affections on the man that she is going to be wed to. We as believers, we clean up the junk in our lives. And, and, and externally, we, we look like we're living more decent lives. But internally, we have fallen deeper and deeper in love with the one we're going to spend eternity with. And so we, the Bible says that, that everyone who longs for his appearing purifies himself just as he is pure. So we prepare our hearts saying, I, I want no one but Jesus. I don't want to be a, a spiritual adulterer saying I've got all these other gods in my life when Jesus comes. No, I want to be very clear to him. You are the one I've been longing for. And when you come, I am waiting for you. I am ready for you. Now, I want you to capture this feeling of what it must be like to be chosen. What it must be like to be someone who feels like I'm always left out, I'm always on the outside, and to know that there's someone who loves us so deeply. I think this interview with a a former football player will convey to you the power of being chosen. So watch this. This is Tim Tebow. You do so much much, uh, charity work, and I think you you always have, but uh, it's just reached a level that I I can't even believe it. I have to say uh, I'm so impressed by it, and I think it's so cool that you do this. Uh, Tim Tebow Foundation? Yeah. And what is the thing, you do have a thing called Night to Shine. Yes. And what is this again? Well, Night to Shine is a worldwide prom for people with special needs. Sorry. And <laughs> worldwide, so you, have, so you have a worldwide prom. We have a worldwide prom the Friday before Valentine's Day. And at the same time, all around the world, in every state, this past year in 11 countries, over 375 locations at one time, um, kids with special needs are being celebrated. They're walking down red carpets. They're being cheered for. And it's my favorite night of the year. That's so fun. I love that you do that. Have you... uh... I want to hear about your prom. Have you ever, uh, what was your prom experience? You know, I never went to prom in high school. I was always playing baseball, basketball, or football. We were always so busy. Oh, no. I know. You've never been to prom. That means you've never, you've never given a date <laughs> one, of these, one of these? It's beautiful. It's, dude, it's like a scrunchie with a, with a flower attached. It's very fashionable. It goes with nothing. Thank you and, so uh, much. Yeah, this is for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You. No, you it's actually... beautiful. You do have someone you'd like to give it to tonight, uh, someone in the audience. I do. There is actually a special girl here in the audience that went to Night to Shine here in New York, 
and she is so amazing. She, she is so inspirational, and she actually reached out to me and invited me to prom, and I was kind of flying all over the world going to a lot of them, but we invited her mom here today, and she is here, and I am here, and so Judy Adams, I was wondering if maybe I could have a dance. <laughs> I want you to feel what it must be feeling. And I know some of you do know this. You've gone through a lot of rejection in your life. Maybe through your family, maybe through a spouse, maybe through people at work and you felt unloved. I want you to know this. There is a God who made you, who even before you were born said, I choose you. And maybe it's taken this long for you to hear it, but I'm here to tell you today, he chose you. He's reaching his hand out to you. And all you need to do is say yes and grab that hand, and he will take you on a, on a dance of a life that is unlike any other experience. Amen. We have been blessed. Yes. I'm just going to cover these last two real quickly. It says he has adopted us through Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption. That was God's destiny for his elect. His destiny for us was to become his children to adopt us. Our insurance agent this summer adopted a little boy from China, and that boy came into their family, and he was loved by his siblings, and he's treated like an equal member of the family. That's what adoption is. You get equal rights with every member of that family. You also have responsibilities to act like a child. Just like our own kids, we have expectations for them. This is how we expect you to act at home and act in public, and we want it to be consistent. And so we have expectations for you. As children of God, there are expectations for how we live out our faith in the world. And there's a cost, a great cost for adoption. Thousands and thousands of dollars. And God went through a great cost to adopt you and I into his family. It says in John chapter 1, verse 12, that to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's through faith. We become born again into his family. And then the last blessing we receive from the Father is he has grace-saturated us in Christ. I, I, I try to find a way to say this because there was nowhere that really captured this feeling of being washed over with abundant grace. The old New International Version says he lavished us with grace. Grace in the Son in whom he loves. King James Version says in the Beloved. It's a different way of saying in Jesus Christ. So all through every one of these promises that God gives us, all, every one of these blessings says in Christ Jesus, in the Son, in Jesus Christ. But in this moment, he says, in the Son he loves. See, we're familiar with John three sixteen that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten Son. Do you realize that God gave his only beloved Son? A Son he loved immensely. A Son that who was, when he was baptized by John the Baptist... This voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. And that beloved son was the price that was paid for us to be adopted. He is the one who offered his life on a cross for us. They have those nails driven through his hands and through his feet, the crown of thorns on his head, who endured the taunting of other people. He bore the price of our sins. That was the price of adoption, his own blood. 
And so we are blessed with grace. We don't get what our sins deserve. We get better than our sins deserve. Grace upon grace comes to us. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 16, it's described this way. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given, or grace upon grace. It's like grace is this, is this fountain that just keeps pouring over us again and again and again. We're richly favored. You know, there's one other place in the Bible where this concept of being blessed by God is used. Almost exact same word. It's found in Luke chapter 1, verse 28. It's when the Virgin Mary heard the message from the angel that she was going to carry the Christ child. And the angel said to her, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Highly favored. That's what Paul says we are. Highly favored. Not just blessed. Highly favored. You are highly favored when you've surrendered your life to Jesus. You want to live a blessed life? You can. Say yes to Jesus. It's that simple. 